Do you know, I wasn't expecting to be like introduced quite this soon, so I, I thought it was just, he was getting ready to, uh, you know, uh, bust out some uh, joint moves there. So, um, there we go. Uh, I'm just going to bring this over. I'm going to put that carefully down there where somebody can stand on it. And, uh, you know, it's always a thrill to come to Chowdean. I was thinking about it on the way here. It's like, you know, going to see a relative, but not that relative, you know, where you don't really like to go, and you're just wondering how long is polite to stay, although some of you might be thinking about that, depending on how long I go on for, but it's more like going to see a relative, you know, like who's your favourite auntie who always has the good biscuits. Uh, that's what it's like coming here for me. If we haven't had a chance to meet in person, please come Say hi at the end. Tell me a fun fact about yourself. I'm particularly interested in hearing who people's favourite Ninja Turtles are this morning. But we're just going to dive straight into the Word. Uh, I'm going to read from Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. I'm going to give you a minute to find that, and I'm also going to go and get my glasses. <laughs> I made most of the other stuff up, but not the Bible bits. So, uh, oh, it's already on the screen. Brilliant. So that, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, around seven miles from Jerusalem. This is on the first Easter Sunday, where reports of Jesus just rising from the dead were starting to filter out. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. I'm speaking of place, I've just lost mine. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. 
the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to him. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now, one of the things I find amazing about the Bible is that we can read passages over years, the same things, and different things jump out at us. When I read this recently, what stood out to me was just this little phrase at the start of verse 21. But we had hoped. I think there's something really powerful in this, something that I hope many of us might relate to us. You know, when we hope for things, recently I bought a Gateshead FC football top. Yeah? It was a little bit snug, but I hoped that I would just like be motivated to like tone up a bit so because they're not very forgiving fabrics, football tops. Or sometimes we might hope, you know, when we stretch the budget a little bit uh, for that, you know, that new handbag or maybe an upgrade on the mobile or a different car or perhaps a holiday, we hope, don't we, we're going to get some peace, satisfaction, joy, fulfillment. Sadly, quite often what we're left with is a feeling of maybe disappointment because it didn't quite do it or... Uh, in my case, a feeling of fear and like, how exactly am I going to afford that? I'm guessing that I'm not the only one who's ever felt like that. But it's not always just a one-off feeling, is it? It's not just an impulse buy that does it. Uh, sometimes these, but we'd hoped moments keep coming around. For me, when I couldn't face life outside of the university student bubble, I started a course uh, which was destined for me to struggle with because it looked at the history of culture with a focus on Renaissance art, hoping that things would just sort of fall into place if I just hung around university for a bit longer and didn't have to move in back at home. Or that time when I left a job because the, the company wasn't just moving with the time they needed to get online. And, you know, I hoped that I was going to have a fresh new career adventure. And actually, the tech startup that I joined ended up getting swallowed up and I ended up being spat out. Or there was this time when, as a family, uh, we tried a new life in Africa. And we were hoping to experience even more of that life and life in all its fullness. And actually, we returned home pretty scarred, bruised, and burned out by it. Now, I know this sounds cheery, doesn't it? A list of things that have gone wrong. Yeah? Um, 
but you know, it isn't always about bad choices. There's more things that can go wrong for us, isn't it? Some of the biggest disappointments and the but we'd hope moments come from things that are entirely out of our control. You know, we read in the, the news, Terry's mentioned this morning, you know, what happens when you, your homeland's attacked by rockets and you're forced to flee? Or there's a flood, whether it be from a boiler or from a tsunami that causes us to be displaced? Or someone who we're so in love with makes us so happy and complete, gets sick and is taken from us much too soon. Or the driver of the other car is too busy on their mobile. Or, like in this morning's reading, when the person that we trust the absolute most, on whom we've pinned all our future plans, is arrested and then executed. The way that Luke writes about what happened 2,000-ish years ago, I think connects with us today, but not only us. I think it's connected with every generation that there's been in between. You might have heard it said that nothing is wasted with God. It's one of those really unhelpful cliches, you know, like, if uh, you've had a messy breakup and somebody says, oh, there's plenty more fish in the sea, or something really bad happens and all you say is, oh, every cloud has a silver lining. It's well-meaning stuff, but it doesn't always feel that helpful in the moment. But for me, if nothing other than my doomed attempt at studying art history, uh, what it did is it introduced me to the Italian painter Caravaggio. Caravaggio himself was very familiar with this story, and in 1601, he painted it in the supper at Emmaus. If you're ever in London, it actually hangs in the National Gallery there, but hopefully it's about to come on the screen now. There it is. If you want to Google this later, Try zooming in on the basket of fruit in the foreground because there's a stray strand of the rattan basket that is just, it looks casually loose, but it really forms a perfect fish symbol popular with the early church. Now, Caravaggio was a really colourful character. He'd known some disappointment himself. Uh, his parents had died when he was at a young age, and he'd been apprenticed to a painter. And he had loads of natural talent. So with many people who have great flair, he then didn't work very hard at it, and he spent a lot of time hanging around Rome with his crew, putting a lot more effort and attention into developing his sword-fighting skills uh, because he was quite a volatile and fiery character. He, uh, entries of his arrest records uh, are still preserved today. My favourite was uh, where he assaulted a waiter and other diners at a restaurant uh, with a tray of artichokes. Uh, so he, he was a popular guy, rising star on the art scene, super in demand, 
and you think everything is going well, and then suddenly, overnight, everything changes. His fiery temper gets the better of him. He's drawn into a duel with a rival, Tomasoni, who he actually fatally wounds in the duel. And suddenly he becomes a wanted man. He has to leave his home in Rome, go on the run because there's a bounty on him, and uh, life becomes very different for him. He keeps trying to do the artwork so he can um, try and win favor with influential people and get his way back to home, but it doesn't actually work out for him. But in 1606, he returns some five years later to this supper at Emmaus again. This time, if you want to go and see the original, you've got to travel a bit farther because it's in Milan, but hopefully we're going to see it on the screen again. Now, it's a very different treatment, isn't it? A lot darker, a lot earthier, and again, if you want to Google this and do a bit of enlarging and zooming, what we see here is a Jesus who is far more grounded, manly, earthy kind of treatment. And you can even see on his hands that um, there's dirt under his like fingernails rather than this fancy with all the you know, brighter colors and the more elaborate table setting and everything like that. Because going through disappointment, whether planned or stuff that just happens, changes the way that we see things, doesn't it? In this second treatment from Caravaggio, it changes the way that he's seen Jesus. And I think that many of us who've tried to follow Jesus and done some of the journey will testify that as we go through life and pick up some hurts and scars and disappointments, the way that we see him and how he connects with us changes too. Now, given Caravaggio's love of a bit of drama and his feisty character, I was puzzled as to why, given this story that we've got, does he choose to paint the meal? I mean, why not paint Jesus like getting in the middle of the argument that's going on as they're walking down the road wondering what's going to happen. Yeah, I could, like, see, he definitely, Caravaggio, had the skill to be able to pull off paint the expression on Jesus' face, which, I mean, what would it have looked like? Yeah, he's patiently walking alongside two people whose sole topic of conversation is, where is Jesus? They are so caught up in how his disappearance has disrupted their plans that they literally can't recognize that he's there journeying alongside him, talking to them, moving at their pace. But I think Caravaggio actually understood that the real action, the real drama, in this story is taking place at the table. But I want to switch from comparing and contrasting um, 
you know, the first and then the more recent painting. And let's get back to what the Bible's talking about. And can we compare and contrast this most recent meal that we've read about with the first meal that we read about in the Bible? And it's in Genesis chapter 3. Again, it's going to come up on the, on the screen. This is how the first recorded sharing of food together goes. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? So we read here about a meal where as food is shared, eyes are opened and a relationship is damaged as something that we, we call sin is introduced. These days, sin is like a pretty tricky label to use, isn't it? Because it's kind of been hijacked by marketing and advertising to, uh, you know, like luxury ice cream. So good, it's sinful. Uh, I, I think sin is better thought of as a way of describing when we miss the target, we fall short of the plan, the intended peace and harmony that God set out is just taken away and disrupted. Since something that brings with it shame, which limits rather than expands our lives, limits our lives to such a point that we don't really live anymore. Now, if we compare this to the meal that Luke described, again, food's been shared and we're told that their eyes were opened, but this time, it's, it, as their eyes are opened, relationship is restored. They recognize Jesus, and the hope that they thought they had lost is actually revived. Their, their confidence hadn't been misplaced after all. Nothing is lost or wasted. We can be free, can't we, to enjoy life as Jesus promised and is recorded in John chapter 10, verse 10, a life in all its fullness. Peace can be experienced and it's a peace, we're told in Philippians 4, that passes all understanding, the sort of peace that you know, sticks its tongue out at like negative and difficult circumstances. However, it's not all about contrast. There are some similarities too. In both Genesis 3 and Luke 24, we read about a God who's not far away and distant and sitting there looking down, but he's a God who's walking who's seeking to be with us, who's calling us by name, even when we feel like 
we're so distant or we're experiencing shame that we feel that we should hide from him. He's walking, looking for us and calling us by name. Even when we think, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do next. All my plans and confidence has gone. He journeys with us. Even when we're so focused on what's going on in our heads and our plans that we can't recognize how close he is to us, he still journeys with us, moving along at our pace. In the artwork, too, there is a similarity that we need to uh, have a look at. Our comparison slides up there. Although... You know, Caravaggio's experience of exile has, like, toned some of the stuff down. There's one thing that I really want to draw your attention to. At each of the tables, there's a space as we look on. There's space for one more person to come and sit at the table. And this morning, I want to offer an invitation, if I can, for us to come and sit at the table with Jesus. To have our eyes opened to a future of unconditional love and acceptance. Now it's a future that is not guaranteed to be free of trouble or pain or stress or disappointment. But there is a guarantee that we won't make those steps alone. Hebrews 13, the second part of verse 5, tells us, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Can I invite us now to just close our eyes and we're just going to take a moment to still our hearts and pray. As we hold this silence, let's invite God to draw close and just speak to us in the stillness. As I was praying ahead of speaking today, I got a sense that there may be some here who need to put down uh, some hurt from a disappointment that we've been carrying around with us for such a long time, like, like an uncomfortable bag, and start to see that experience in a different light. Not to forget about it or to diminish it, but to see it as something that we don't have to lock away or feel any sense of shame about, that we have to keep hidden. But there are others who will be encouraged to know that they aren't the only ones who've struggled through loss or hurt or pain. I also wonder whether there's some of us this morning who may have been so engrossed in our current issues and predicaments that we failed to notice that Jesus is there patiently at our side. Remember, he knows our names. He's calling to us, moving at our pace. He's not far off in the distance, like looking down at, oh, how slow, how little progress. He is with us. Or maybe this morning it's time for us to stop being a casual observer, just looking on and take that seat at the table 
and open up to Jesus, maybe for the first time. Father God, we thank you uh, for the encouragement of your word that wherever we journey, whatever disappointments and stress we've come through, that you are interested in knowing us, in being with us, in inviting us into new possibilities of a hope-filled future with you. Holy Spirit, will you just draw close to those who are acutely feel in pain? Will you bring that peace that's promised? And Father, for those who are just reaching for you, make haste to draw alongside them. I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, John. Um, just as the band are making their way up, immediate thoughts. You know, I made some notes, and John, I've got to say, John, that was exceptional um, in opening our eyes to things that we maybe wouldn't see. I don't often look at artwork. When I do, I don't look at it with the kind of depth uh, and understanding that that displays. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Um, and the, the, the comparison between the two meals and, and what comes from that uh, is just amazing. I like your, I like your little comment about um, the kind of piece that sticks its tongue out when trouble arises. I love that one. Yeah, that's a vision I'm going to keep. Um, but yeah, and, and I just thought when you were talking about carrying hurt, put it down and see it in a different light. That was one observation. Stop being a casual observer. And I've come across a number of casual observers in recent times. And I recently spoke with a, <clears throat> a man who lost his son teen, when, he was a teen, when the son was a teenager. And um, he said he went to an Alpha course shortly afterwards. And he said it would have been so easy to have taken that step of faith and put my trust in Jesus. It would have been so easy, but I didn't. And I said, well, why? And he said, maybe because it was so easy. And I thought that was an interesting comment because Jesus, God doesn't make it hard for us to come to know him. He doesn't make it hard for us to receive forgiveness. He doesn't make it hard for us to know him and, and all the benefits that come with knowing Him, the peace that transcends all understanding. It's easy. We just have to repent and believe. So if anybody has not, anybody here now, or anybody who's uh, watching online or listening later, if you have not taken that step, if you just said, Lord, you know, I want to turn away from that wrong path I've been on. And I want to come and be with you on the path that leads to eternal life. Forgive me, Lord. Uh, and you accept that offer of salvation which comes by grace. Then you will receive the things that John has spoken about this morning. So I'll leave those thoughts with you now and what to that about. Thanks.